Welcome to the Satellite and New Space Matters podcast, a series of interviews with key leaders throughout the industry, all brought to you by the Satellite and New Space team at NUCO, a specialist global recruitment and executive search firm. Welcome to the Satellite and New Space Matters podcast. Your host today are myself, Ewan Lawrenson, senior consultant, and my good colleague and associate consultant, Annabelle Smeaton. And we are delighted to be joined today by Jim Caravalla, co-founder and chief executive officer of Offworld. Jim has undertaken many leadership roles in innovation in multidisciplinary areas, such as aerospace engineering, space systems, robotics, and machine intelligence. He spent many years managing launch programs and space access with Russian and Ukrainian launch vehicles alongside six years as launch manager for Surrey Satellite Technology. He co-founded Shackleton Energy, developing architectures for mining in space using propellant depots and reusable transport systems. He also co-founded a synthetic biology program, which was a result of a collaboration with NASA Ames relating to bio-leaching scenarios in terrestrial and space mining. He sits on advisory boards for a number of space institutes, including the National Space Society, International Moon-Based Alliance, and the Moon Village Association. And amongst more, he also co-founded Offworld, who are and will be extracting critical minerals and materials on Earth and in space using swarms of smart industrial robots. That's quite the bio there. Um, And welcome to the show, Jim Caravalla. Yeah, thanks, Ewan. Thanks, Annabelle. We're really looking forward to this one. So I thought to get us started, we'll ask the question that we always do, which is how and why did you first decide to get into the satellite and space industry? Well, um, as a kid, um, I was always into space and dolphins and dinosaurs, um, the, the standard repertoire. Um, and when when I was in, in my... Uh, uh, early high school, I, I, I came across a, a piece of work by uh, Thomas Malthus um, uh, around um, populations and limits of resources in uh, in um, in closed states and closed systems. And being such a space nut at the time, it just it just hit me very very quickly uh, how Earth is a closed system, uh, effectively. And for some reason, that the, the enormity of that hit me as as a as a young person. I must have been eleven or twelve at the time. And um, it just it just brought those uh, that that passion I had for space and space technology and uh, the space in general and astronomy. And it seemed like this was the beyond logical uh, effort that we needed to make was to open up our closed earth economic system. So it's very much driven by that, which which is why I got uh, into predominantly asteroid mining as a, as a hobby very early on and and then all the technologies involved with that and uh, around um, space travel and spacecraft. So I took what became, a, I think, a childhood hobby and passion, and it just galvanized into a, uh, a mission uh, and a calling. Fascinating. And, you, and you've been driven ever since. And obviously, you, you went to uh, university um, in the UK and um, yeah, studying space-related things. So your entire life, really, um, well, since you know a young age, has been focused around this. Yes, yes. Brilliant. Well, we're glad much. to hear it. 
Yeah, yeah very, very much so. It's um, uh, and and I thought, uh, funnily enough, growing up, I thought that was pretty normal. Um, that you know everyone would find a bug and and jump into that and drive into that and and, and it, it's certainly not unique. Um, but I do certainly recognize it as a as a privilege, at least for myself, that. You know, I, I found a calling that uh, that drives me so uh, relentlessly forward. No, brilliant. I'm, I'm glad that you did. And yeah, I think it's, I think maybe, you know, a lot of people might have uh, an interest in it or desire to do it, but it's a different thing to be driven enough to actually go out there and, and make things happen. Brilliant. Um, well, look, I mean, we're, we're going to touch on, you know, continue in the area of the past now. Um, I know Annabelle has a, a couple of questions for you, so I'll pass over to her. Yes, so what I would love to know is what moment or idea led you to found Offworld? Oh, great question. <clears throat> so, um, well, I've been in the, uh, let, let's say the entrepreneurial uh, slipstream for uh, over 20 years now. And my previous startup, uh, Shackleton Energy Company, um, which I worked on for about eight years, uh, involved a team of us um, uh, actually uh, heading to the lunar surface ourselves. Um, six of us would uh, land near the uh, Shackleton crater on the South Pole, set up operations, uh, and start uh, extracting water ice uh, to convert to LOX hydrogen for um, propellant uh, return propellant for our um, uh, launch vehicle propulsion, our rocket propulsion. Um, <clears throat> and we designed that architecture to to um, to operate without return propellant, so that we would we would make a real um, statement that this could be done and we could close the supply chain. So I spent several years after we put the whole architecture together. We did a lot of system engineering, had a had a large associative team around that. And after uh, several years of fundraising, we were successful to some extent um, and expanded the program into a large space-based solar power architecture. Um, uh, we had uh, a sovereign leader actually uh, under underpin the program with us. So we uh, uh, that expanded into um, involvement with several countries as well. And a big mobilization of what would have become the world's biggest energy infrastructure program uh, had we been successful. Um, but in the end, it didn't progress. Um, and uh, towards the end of that, um, uh, as that as that came to a close, I thought, well, if you know, uh, I took some lessons learned out of that. This was uh, in 2015. Well, if you know, if we can't. Um, even if we raise funds from a sovereign wealth leader, uh, you know, a billionaire sovereign wealth leader, and the gatekeepers, you know, after that, you know, de-risk and then um, basically uh, reduce the viability of it, it's it's really difficult to find to find another alternative. Uh, you know, that would have been it. How to capitalize that that program? Um, the second lesson I learned out of that was, well, it's rather than go and raise money from a billionaire, it would be probably easier to become a billionaire and do it yourself. And, and that's 
just looking at the evidence, um, some of the most uh, effective uh, uh, space technology programs uh, are those under underwritten by the founder who can uh, align his conviction with his capital deployment or her capital deployment. And and so <clears throat> so that was another lesson learned. And then I think finally uh, I drew the the other principle that there's no such thing as a space business. There's it's just business. If you can uh, follow the basic rules of uh, economics, uh, investment, return of investment, uh, uh, acquiring customers, closing the loop for end users, and providing value. Then, um, then you have a business that happens to operate in space. It's a space business. So I took those lessons learned um, and uh, <clears throat> figured out well, what's okay. If, uh, we still want to expand humanity out into the solar system, into the stars. What's the pathway we can do that? Um, and if you're going to scale and get all of that, um, those resources uh, or financial resources, well, we need to find the planet. The closest planet with the most paying aliens. Um, so it happens we do have one with with the lowest launch cost as well. Uh, so decided that if we can build our system on Earth and operate on this planet and make that system um, uh, applicable and usable in any planetary body in any location in the solar system, um, then we've got a, then we've got um, a proposition that really works and that was the the founding principles around offworld um and um and so far uh, i i think we're having um steady and resilient success with that principle that's really really fascinating fantastic answer there and and we've sort of touched on it there but af, um, as is often the case with innovators and entrepreneurs they do often encounter difficult periods or setbacks or challenges um you've mentioned some already but um were there any moments of um quote-unquote failure in your career outside of um, outside of shackleton that ha had helped you learn and grow yes um i i, I would almost say countless but I'll say several. Um, so um, actually, you know, looking back, uh, this is one of, I guess this is one of those um, uh, the very important aspects um, when, when trying to create something at the frontier um, is that looking forward, into the into the unknown of what you're trying to do, especially when you're trying to create something new. There are uncertainties in the environment around what you're doing. Is the market ready? Um, uh, do I have enough of a, a good team? Is the product really viable? Um, and then a thousand related questions around that. And then there are intrinsic uncertainties. Um, am I doing the right thing? Uh, am I am I good enough to do this? Is do I know enough? Um, do I garner enough trust? Um, what what are are the closest people around me willing to continue that with me as well? You know, family or friends. And so you're you're beset by 
uncertainties and on a daily basis, uh, questioning yourself, um, doubts, and especially when things go wrong and they go wrong all the time. Um, and so, so not only are you dealing with the objective challenges of dealing with, um, it, it wouldn't necessarily be failure at that point in time, but you're dealing with challenges, stresses, mismatches as you try to bring all of these realities together. And then you have these in, uh, uh, intrinsic doubts and questions and um, that you keep raising and, and challenging yourself with. And so <clears throat> the, the in, invariable um, failures, shall we call them, um, do a number of things. It, it I think the most important thing for me is not necessarily what uh, there, there are some obvious lessons learned that yeah I, I can see looking back I can see some of the big challenges can be with my assumptions personally speaking um, I, I have often been uh, as, as a few friends have said uh, I, I think with some humor and affection that I'm often reaching beyond my grasp uh, and, or grasping beyond my reach. And, and I think that's always been the case because, um, and I admit it, I, you know, it, it's simply how do you cross a chasm between a single planet species uh, to a, a species flourishing into the solar system and <clears throat> with pathways to um, get to our next star. And for multiple reasons, that's, I think, the most important, the most single important endeavor that uh, our generation and the next can do. And so by, by trying to go for something so ambitious, uh, it's inevitable that you're misaligned with all the economic um, and environmental realities of steady state markets today that operate with a certain set of rules. And I think one of the, the biggest lessons learned for me was however perhaps grand or vital I might think the mission is, the reality is that the 99.99% of the population may or may not agree with you, and, and that can be a matter of opinion, but it's almost certain that they will not align, assign resources to support that vision because in fact human nature and economic realities operate on a very 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 clear set of rules and principles and it is the the, the economic and free market um, or, or let's say the the, the the capitalism framework that is our economy today operates on the rules it does because it's a reflection of our nature so it took me a long time to understand and bridge that understand that reality that it's not just a set of arbitrary rules it's intrinsic to who we are as a species and a population and so i think the one big lesson learned for me uh, and i recommend everyone to consider that however however ambitious and however um, uh, <clears throat> important their mission is is that you need to articulate the stages of your mission and, and whatever it is you're doing within the rule set of economic reality today. 
investment reality, market forces, customer acquisition, return of investment, net present value of what you're doing and building. So that you stage and you, you create milestones uh, along your plan so that you're providing and demonstrating value um, so that if, if you do uh, take on investors, for example, that you're meeting the requirements of those investors. And as soon as you start to thread those two aspects together, what, what is that internal drive and that big vision and mission that you're trying to undertake? And then what are the, the rules of the game for economic engagement uh, as you build your uh, operations and your business? And your unique threading of that pathway between those two points is where the spark of uh, genius and entrepreneurial vision will become reality and you'll be on your way. Um, so I think lessons like that, um, it took me a long time to understand it. And even perhaps hearing it, um, uh, because I'm sure I heard that sort of advice, not necessarily articulated in that way, but um, that sort of advice several times. Um, and depending on, on how how you approach it. Let's put let's just leave it at that. Depending on how you approach your mission, you may or may not listen to that advice. Because you may think, well, I'm going to test the premise. I believe there are, I believe there's something different about what I'm doing, and a hundred other reasons. And if that's if that's what you've got to go through, then that's what you've got to go through. But I think there are there are huge lessons learned all over the uh, the place. I think that's that's fascinating and some very good advice. And if somebody can look beyond the veil, but then, as you say, kind of tie it to the realities of today and create that that journey that you know can bridge the gap, that is going to be necessary, isn't it? Because, like you say, in the, in the kind of capitalist society that we live in, you know, there's got to be a you know, uh, uh, it's got to be commercially viable, shall we say? Uh, and just to say that I will, we we've, we're going to go to the stars, you know. From that alone, that's not going to get you far, is it? So to be able to then create that journey. And I think that brings us on very nicely, actually, Jim, to kind of the present as well, because with Offworld, what you're doing at the moment, you know, terrestrially um, is fascinating. I'm very keen to understand more around that. Um, and then also, of course, you know, recent news around the Luxembourg office and, you know, investment there. You know, how are we going to take this into space? Sure. So, um, no, it, it's it's my uh, absolute pleasure to just share a little bit about what the team at Offworld are doing, and 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 this is really a reflection on a, on a truly magnificent team um, uh, of, uh, of of young men and women uh, who, are, who are driven, have a level of excellence, and a and a brilliant um, culture and sense of grit and can do um, under all sorts of pressures and uh, objectives. So huge shout out to the team um, because this is this is all about them and you know just just in that context you know the the, the founding entrepreneur is, is an important piece of the puzzle but really they're pilot like the the real the real fire is the team and um, and it's and it's more true in Offworld's case than uh, than anything. And so, what what we're doing with Offworld is um, is is I think I really believe we're solving that that puzzle piece that there's a missing puzzle piece between the Earth's surface, low Earth orbit, and the next um, 
planetary surfaces, uh, whether they be inside a gravity well like the moon or elsewhere like asteroids. We're building swarms of robust, rugged, machine intelligent robots that can operate in comms and GPS denied environments. Uh, these robots are interoperable. Um, they have their own uh, sets of um, autonomy and then learning intelligence on top of the autonomy. Uh, they're built on a modular platform so that um, main subsystems are interchangeable and common, such as power, communications, data handling architecture, sensor environments, etc. And, and each species of robot, we call them species, each species of robot is generally dedicated to one or maybe two functions. Um, and that way we can kind of cheat a little. Because we're building a common platform, um, it, it's much more like a robotic app store um, where we have a certain set of robotic parts and then each robot is a function of those, a uh, configuration of those parts or modules uh, around a common platform. We, we're cheating a little bit because um, we can use uh, our form of intelligence and autonomy uh, to really focus that function uh, very simply. So the robot doesn't have to do many think different things, but it has to do a few things extremely well because our plan or our deployment uh, conops or concepts of operation is that these robots operate in environments where there's no communication and there's no GPS access. It's cold, often dark. Um, uh, these can be uh, these environments can be uh, enclosed. Um, uh, rocky and not smooth surfaces at all. Uh, they can be wet, they can be water inclusions, uh, a lot of dust. So a really, really harsh environments um, and fantastic training for our robots and our engineers on how we build for, let's say, lunar operations uh, downstream. And so with all of, the, all of those challenges, uh, of the environment, you, you want the most rugged and toughest uh, robots you can have. And because we're, we're building these systems so that um, human operators do not have to be there at a joystick uh, and neither do they have to be there 24-7 um, monitoring the systems, there's a, there's a great deal of uh, independence and collaborative autonomy amongst these robots. And that means we can then start deploying these different species, such as excavators, surveyors, collectors, haulers, um, and other types of robots, and they're, they're kind of descriptive uh, for each species of what they do. Um, they operate uh, amongst each other, they collaborate, there's material handling, handover, all of this done autonomously without people controlling. And what that means is for our first target sector, which we're, which we're really focused on, which is the mining sector, um, we can have our robots go into an ore body or into a mine. Um, our surveyors will start identifying and recal recalibrating our understanding, the mapping of that mine, do other sorts of sensing. Uh, the surveyor has a very fantastic uh, um, uh, modular and interchangeable payload bay. 
so we can we have different payload candidates for uh, different classes of surveyor. So we can do some very comprehensive mapping and surveying around that. Then our uh, excavator and its supporting robots will go in um, and start excavating. Collectors will collect, and then the haulers will take that material out uh, after receiving it from the collector. Um, and then we'll be deploying these in the first mine, full mine deployments will be in 2025, although we have uh, uh, field deployments already at the end of this year. We've had uh, deployments to different species over the last three years as well in pilot programs. Um, so the other thing is it takes a long time to get to work these sorts of things, especially in the environments that we're operating in. So Offworld went to tackle the hardest problems in robotics, unstructured environments, comms, no comms, no GPS, uh, wet, dirty, dusty, um, limited ability for control and a, and a strong reliance on autonomy um, and a focused and targeted application of machine learning, re deep reinforcement learning um, and other technologies around that. And that has really, um, it's taken us uh, many years developing this architecture, developing the platform and system, and then the robots that sit on that platform. Um, but we are really doing some extraordinary uh, world-class uh, engineering developments, and I can go a little bit more deeper into that um, subsequently. But, the, but the, um, the summary outcome of having that capability is that in the mining sector, we can take people completely out of harm's way. So we won't have people in the mine at all, um, which is extraordinarily important for families and friends and communities um, that every day when, when these mining workers go in the mine, I, I know the mining companies make every effort to ensure safety, but things still happen. It's a ridiculously dangerous environment. Uh, the second um, benefit is that we don't require any fixed infrastructure in our systems. Um, all our robots are mobile, and so we can apply them uh, into any new or existing mine environment and release added value out of that um, out, out of that ore body. And we reduce our use of consumables, and we don't use hydrocarbons and don't leave a huge environmental footprint. Our robots are really designed to operate more like large ants inside the ore body, give us a few little tunnels, let the robots tunnel in, and we can operate um, inside that mine. And ultimately, we're not there yet, but ultimately before the end of the decade, uh, we'll be increasing as, as we move on year by year after, after the 2025 period, uh, we'll be adding more species to extend the, um, uh, our applications of the mining process so that eventually we'll be having uh, processing robots in the mine itself. So not only will we excavate um, and transport the, the ore material, we want to be able to then crush, um, separate and refine the material in the mine with our robots uh, so that uh, ultimately all we're doing is bringing out um, hundreds of kilograms of pure metal ingots in treasure bots instead of moving millions or tens of millions of tons of ore to a processing plant. Um, that coupled with some of our energy beam robots, which weaken the rock um, without drill and blast, uh, could reduce the cost of mining um, and the environmental footprint of a mining 
in a way that is, is the biggest disruption for thousands of years. If we are successful in achieving that uh, vision and goal over the next decade, um, knowing our challenges and the existential push for reaching net zero by mid-century, the, the uh, challenges of the almost six-fold demand of critical minerals to, to meet these new energy infrastructure requirements may have a fighting chance of actually happening then. Incredible, fascinating technology and a very worthy cause as well on many different grounds, ultimately. Um, and we're, we're going to talk about more about the kind of the existential challenges that we're facing in a moment. Um, but I, I am keen to maybe understand, you know, when it comes to you know, the robots that you have, and of course, they're, they're already, you know, designed to be in these difficult environments. Spaces are a very unique and, you know, incredibly difficult environment. How are you going to be able to to make that transition and, and what have you done so far? Yes. Um, so so one of our mottos is first terrestrial and then celestial. Um, it, it's if, if we can't operate and, and build our systems and have them function reliably and robustly on this planet um, with its extremely benign um, environmental factors it'll be tough to do on the next so over the last 70 plus years we've been building spacecraft and systems in space um, that are predominantly bounded by a, a few key factors one is the the absolute tyrannical constraints of launch vehicle dynamics. So reducing the mass from launch to low Earth orbit of your payload has an, an, a non-linear impact on the viability of your uh, mission to get to the low Earth orbit. So we've always built mass-optimized spacecraft and systems, shaving every uh, gram um, we can off the spacecraft and then because you're minimizing that um, physical and subsystem structure, you have to test a lot more. So your reliability and um, quality assurance goes up. And so the, the missions become very, very expensive. And to some extent, in some contexts, very delicate. They're very vulnerable to, to malfunction and, uh, and especially physical degradation. The second aspect is that we're operating in a harsh vacuum environment um highly um uh, highly susceptible to uh, solar and other radiation and and third if you're operating on the on the moon um we we have extraordinarily um abrasive electrostatically charged uh, lunar regolith dust um very fine uh, shards of dust that have no weathering because there's no atmosphere so they're, they're super sharp, super abrasive. So any soft material uh, like rubber, but even metals and, and others, and then let alone um, uh, human biology, uh, they're extremely toxic. And, and so these are some, just some of the factors um, around that. And, and there are many more that, that uh, <clears throat> define a, a significant difference between 
what you might build terrestrially and what you might build for in-space operations. Uh, and traditionally, these have been two different classes of um, system build with, with good reason. In the era of expendable, expensive launch vehicles, which we have been in since the 50s, 1950s, that uh, launch vehicle constraint, the mass optimization of your spacecraft has been paramount. With, um, with the onset of potentially of uh, SpaceX's Starship, uh, Blue Origin's New Glenn, and all things being equal, what should be an era of increasing heavy reusable launch vehicles? Should the, should the assumptions around that and that, uh, that uh, capability emerge uh, over the next five to 10 years as a robust commercial offering? This, uh, this will probably be the, the biggest, the single biggest game changer for what it means for humanity in space um, since the likes of Solskovsky and, uh, and Goddard. Um, <clears throat> the economics and the systems build and everything we do um, in space and all of our assumptions will turn upside down. We will move from a mass optimized spacecraft architecture and space system architecture to a cost optimized system architecture. So it just, just like, well, <clears throat> if we're transporting cargo by air today, uh, we, you know, we have to measure the mass. We, we're, we're a bit careful about it. You know, we, we account for it. Um, but, the, but the cost of that mass variance uh, for your air cargo, is is something you just account for uh, to provide value. It's not something that makes the ability of this aircraft to take off viably or, or for your um, your payload to be a, a million dollars or $10 million uh, transport cost by FedEx. It, there's, no, there's no issue like that with that kind of um, uh, critical nature. But in, in, in space transportation to low Earth orbit, it has been that level of criticality. With the onset of heavy reusable launch vehicles, um, and there's genuine genius around what has been done so far, um, <clears throat> that everything turns on its head. And Offworld has been, from the very start, has been taking a, an approach of, we're going to build cost-optimized systems, not mass-optimized, because we're already operating on our terrestrial, you know, terrestrial mature market. And that's that's the that's the liberating advantage that we have. And it's our thesis that the delta between terrestrial engineering requirements and in-space and lunar engineering requirements is a, the delta is a lot smaller to get from here to there than it is to start off and build a dedicated lunar lunar subsystem or lunar um, system or robot um, and have it land there from, a, from an exploratory class spacecraft build philosophy. <clears throat> 
the beauty of this, uh, I think the elegance of this um, approach is that we're operating in mature markets on earth, meeting the requirements of a very demanding and huge market pull. And we can use the same baseline platform architecture. It may require some modifications, but we can use the same baseline platform architecture to operate in the nascent, uh, harsh in-space environments. And the more we can use our, the more we can bring these two classes of, uh, of um, system together and robot species together, the, the, the more uh, extraordinary the economics of in-space operations will be. And our goal is to bring, um, bring the, the cost function and the pricing of our terrestrial uh, species of robots and our lunar species of robots uh, more or less to equivalency and uh, and that and what that basically means is bringing down the cost of the lunar robots to operate more or less in the same uh, economics um, factor as our terrestrial robots if we've got transportation that allows us to get their reasonable cost that we can factor in if we have energy so sources that allow robots to operate, and we've got local resources, off-world's industrial robotic workforce is the new labor force of the solar system that can basically mine, build, and expand infrastructure on the lunar surface and beyond uh, as humanity rolls out. And this is brilliant, and we can't wait to see it happen ultimately. And and the step by step process that you're taking with it is very much aligned with your overall uh, mindset that you spoke of earlier as well. You know, with the, the big vision and you know aligning it and and bringing it to the reality of the time and step by step. Um, and you know, the in space economy as we as we you know see it starting to happen is is going to be so exciting, and to see off world as part of that leading it is going to be brilliant. Um, now. We want to talk about the the topic that matters here, um, and and I know we've touched on it. You know, when we we've mentioned you know existential challenges and the benefit of um, you know what Offworld can do, and ultimately we want to understand you know, and this is this is a, the the topic today is how to ensure that humanity survives the existential challenges of this generation and thrives to the next century. Um, I know Annabelle had a question to to kick us off um, in relation to this. Yeah, so it's it's a big question, but shall we start off with, um, I guess, what are the current challenges humanity is facing? Um, an important question, yeah, but thanks. <laughs> um, so the challenges that we're facing today are in part born out of our own success as a species and in part are systemic uh, steady state ongoing risks. Um, that are always in the background and to some extent the intersection of the two. I think the manifestation of all of these challenges is is not um, it's not the uncertainties of big environmental cataclysm or, or other uh, single impact uh, changes. There's always the asteroid impact issue. Um, uh, a star going supernova and uh, uh, creating an untenable environment um, for life on, on this planet. Um, 
or calderas going off well, there's always there's always the big the big issues of um uh, that that provide great hollywood fodder that those 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 issues are real the the probability of those occurring um in the next hundreds of years or thousands of years are, are, are very very small but but they do exist the the biggest the the more the more um concerning um risks that um are in front of us uh, are those that th those that are subject to cascading um sequencing so the things that seems small and innocuous maybe maybe the um the amount of um greenhouse gases in the atmosphere i know there's a lot of a lot of noise and media in, in the media and a lot of communication a lot of concern about it but but these these are um, more like cascading triggers um so greenhouse gases leading to temperature atmospheric temperature rises leading to loss of biodiversity leading to which can also then lead to changes in um, weather patterns climate ocean current path patterns which can then lead to changing of you know reduction of um, polar ice caps which can add to the lack of reflectance um, of, of uh, uh, sun's energy which can then start increasing those cycles so so you you get these dynamic instabilities which can start running running along it's in in my personal opinion it's it's less about those changes because those changes are happening right now and i think there's it's a combination of natural cycles of what our planet goes through uh, the environment is always changing um, combined with some small but catalytic inputs into that environmental system that we're doing um, as a species. And, and I know there's a lot of debate around climate change, um, about the origin of it. Is it, is it human generated or is it just natural? Um, in, in some ways, that seems to me not necessarily a moot question, but it's less important of a question is well what are we going to do about it um and just like with everything else we do we tend to take out insurance for our car our home our rabbits um whatever whatever it is that's important to us and so we should take out some form of insurance for our planet as well and and so that that form of insurance it's not about creating um an escape valve it's about opening up that closed system. If you remember at the start of this conversation, it was talking about you know, the works of Malthus and other economists at the time um, in, in the 18th and 19th centuries and uh, you know, continually, who have looked at this principle. So if we can open up the system and then use the resources of space, we can truly, we can really genuinely truly uh, help solve some of these challenges. And, and the, 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 the consequence of these challenges, um, in my view, more socioeconomic um, in, in that, as I said, I, I believe these, we, are, we are in the midst of these changes already. I know there's a lot of effort by um, 
the United Nations, um, individual countries, and organizations and entrepreneurs uh, the world over um, to maintain a net zero set of objectives uh, for mid-century or sooner, um, maintain the 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature rise above pre-industrial levels, um, and, and the related challenges around this. But you know, having, having been to um, you know, at least one of the United Nations COP meetings uh, on climate change, I, I, I personally don't believe as a species, we're, we're really that well equipped to, to deal collectively and sensibly um, and proactively with challenges that we rationally are aware of, but economically we don't have the tools to address. So as a species, we tend to wait for things to happen and then deal with the consequences afterwards. Despite, despite being able to forward project what's needed, um, we, just, we just don't act proactively. That, that's, the, that's the nature of, I think, to some extent, that's the nature of um, the, the economic structures that we have globally as well. Um, the economic structures respond to value in real time. Those same rules for creating long-term uh, visions of entrepreneurial change are unfortunately the same rules that apply to long-term visions of environmental mitigation. So understanding that, what can we do to break down the problem and address it and then solve the problem in um, uh, once and for all? So I, I, I personally believe there are, there are um, uh, several different classes of mitigation work that can be done. Uh, the, the, first, the first is assuming the consequences of the changes we're undergoing now this century are going to happen. Let's assume the consequences are going to happen. Um, I, I, I believe if we were going to address climate change, we should have started looking and acting at that 50 years ago. Um, when, when it becomes obvious or when the, the results are in, you're, you're decades behind the curve of creating the change. It's too big a needle to move now. So the, the question I think needs more, more urgent attention is what happens to coastal regions and deprived areas? What do we do for those communities? Um, what are the, the risks of micro weather pattern changes that are emerging? Um, uh, you know, the, whether it's more hurricanes, whether it's uh, greater uh, heat domes, what does that do for agriculture? What does that do for availability of fresh water? And, and I think um, the, the, the most vulnerable will be, will be the most affected. So coastal regions in, in uh, emerging nations and those whose economies and infrastructure are less organized um, and less mature will suffer the greatest. So what can we do to get ahead of solving that problem? And I believe that's a focused enough, those are focused enough set of challenges um, that they, there can be economic solutions to address them. And they have to be economically viable solutions in order for us to help our fellow human beings. 
uh, our, our fellow life forms on this planet. The end-to-end -end system will not mobilize unless people are making money off that. It sounds a little brutal, but evidence has shown that it tends to be the norm. Um, we, we can do a humanitarian, we can provide humanitarian aid on momentary uh, basis for extreme isolated events. Um, it, it's, it's part of our nature to try and help. But our nature to, to help um, uh, becomes increasingly subject to economic pressure. Um, and that's, that's the reality of humanity. Um, and in fact, the reality of any life form system, there, there's a resource dynamic uh, in, into the system. So that first class of problems is focusing on how we can help those who are affected by the changes that are emerging. The second class of problem is really where, where I focus on. There are plenty of good people are, uh, attending to the first and plenty of good people um, still trying to prevent um, the, the whole changes from happening. And um, Godspeed to them because they may well be right. And we have to, we have to try all avenues. Um, so I, I would say the first class of um, addressing the problem is how to prevent climate change and the other existential risks that we face. The second class is how to mitigate the effects of it in this generation. And the third class is, is where really I'm focused on is assuming those changes are coming. What can we do to truly turn that around by would probably take one or two generations so that as we move into the 22nd century, we really have got a grip on managing the systems on our planet, protecting our people uh, globally, and at the same time, opening up humanity into the solar system. And that is to, that solution set is really to build uh, in-space infrastructure, um, uh, allow us to access the energy and material resources of um, the inner solar system, carefully harvest those resources and build heavy industrial energy generating infrastructure in space, outside of Earth's atmosphere, so that we are in the cold, desolate wastelands of space, undertaking our industrial processes manufacturing of space-based solar power and other technologies, bringing them down to surround the earth so that we can provide clean, safe energy for our planet without generating heat inside the planet as we build that. That transition uh, or evolution, um, I think is uh, at least two generations uh, to, to mature into an operating uh, infrastructure. But I do believe um, by staging um, revenue generating, profit generating, economically viable milestones um, from today to the end of the century, uh, we have we have everything going for us uh, to build these um, architectures in space um, and to to allow us to transition many of our polluting technologies and industrial processes off the surface of the earth 
uh, out into that um, those desolate wastelands of space um, with in a, in a in a manner where we can take all the lessons learned of responsible utilities that we protect those local environments as well but you know if we if we build if we build a beautiful cottage in a in a meadow the last thing we want to do is put a chemical plant or a cement plant next to that cottage but that's what we do on our planet we have an oasis in the universe this perfect ball where that has allowed life to flourish and I believe there are thousands of other such planets in our galaxy. But right now, they are well out of the reach of us in any time frame that matters. This is it. Earth is the Earth is the center of our Anthropocene universe. And, and we need to do everything we can to, 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 to care for it and look after it. And, and it's, I'm sure no one is in disagreement the, the challenge is we need we need a firm reality on what what is happening today, what we can really do about it, what are the changes we're prepared to accept and tolerate, and what's the big picture that we really have to focus on. Whilst those changes happen, there is going there are going to be trillions of dollars of economic disruption in the next decades. There will be a lot of suffering. But there will also be uh, a lot of opportunities to help and solve those problems. And if we think ahead on those smaller scale problems of how we can help the local communities that are going to be affected, I think those are addressable solutions for that second class of problem. Uh, and that, and that I think, is what needs needs to have more focus terrestrially. I think that second class of how do we help the, the next uh, generation or two of families and communities um, that are going to be in trouble. That, that's where we should place our focus, um, as well as trying to solve the, the big picture terrestrially and address the big solutions terrestrially. A, a great cause there, yeah, definitely. And the in-space economy, there will be a huge effort from many companies and countries. Um, so what other aspects of the in-space economy, aside from mining, um, will be crucial to the future of humanity? Everything. So once, once you have the ability to access local resources outside of Earth's gravity well, and, and if you remember just that the basic driver for that, why that is, unequivocally undeniable is that it takes so much energy to get off Earth's surface versus, say, the moon's surface. And one way to just think about the scale of that difference, if you remember the old Apollo missions with the Saturn V launch vehicle, that huge, that huge rocket was effectively a, um, a skyscraper um, uh, on, on on millions of pounds of, of propellant, that huge machine had to take off and fight Earth's gravity well to get out there and get to the moon. When those astronauts fired off and returned from the moon back to Earth, remember they had that little capsule, they were on the lander, and, and half of that, half of that um, landing apparatus basically took off from the moon with a small spurt. It's, it's not quite a one-to-one -one comparison, but it, it, it gives a visual indication and, and something to help us 
um, identify with just the enormity of the difference between what it takes to get off Earth and what it can take to get off the moon, even more so an asteroid, which is almost almost just swimming in space around things. Um, so the first principle is that it is it becomes a lot cheaper and a lot easier at scale to start building things. And so when we're talking about the in-space economy, we are we are ultimately talking about the in-space economy is no different to what we've been doing for the last 10 to 15,000 years. There is no difference. The principles of accessible transportation with enough energy to enable that transportation have been the same constraints that our species has operated within for thousands of years. Until the, the, the Viking ships and the galleons and, and, the, and the other large ships enabled um, oceanic crossing, most of our populations were bound by um, uh, coastal um, or, or a near shore um, transits by small boats, um, maybe, maybe some migrationary crossings across um, uh, ice plains um, uh, during uh, ice ages, the, the previous ice age. But for the most part, it took the onset of, of large ship sailing ship technology to enable that transit. Same constraints with then the same opportunity um, and emergence after that. Now, of course, there are some differences. Um, at, we've, we've never had to, you know, sometimes we've had to take our own uh, food with us to get to another location, but there's always been the same atmosphere and the same environmental gravity, et cetera. But it, on the scale of difference, you know, one might say, well, if I, if I migrated to a different latitude, the soil is different, the um, climate is different, um, so my food, my crops might not, the, the seeds that I brought with me might not work. Um, I've got to form a different form of cooking and heating the food um, because there's, there's not enough clays in that soil or the, uh, et cetera. So you have to relearn how to survive off that land in that environment as well. And that's no different from in space. Maybe it's not a case of taking different seeds and growing um, uh, different um, plants. Maybe we have to reconstitute uh, our foods and other materials from base elements uh, itself. So uh, the, perhaps the, the, the technology is a little more advanced of what we have to do. We have to go back to even earlier elemental principles, but then we can create uh, what we need to, to live off that land. And so if, if that is the case, if we're talking about this on the scale of migratory um, evolution of our species. The space economy is about building cities. It's about allowing people to go and choose to live in new locations for whatever hundreds or thousands of reasons that we've done so uh, since the dawn of time. And that can be new opportunity, it can be um, a sense of adventure. Um, it can be even avoiding persecution or avoiding constraints uh, or freedom or liberty. Um, we, we see people, millions of people today who are living under the constraints 
um, that we in the West would consider um, centuries past. Um, we, 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 in, in the West and other developed nations, we're, we're living in a privileged uh, economic bubble. It is not the norm of our, of our uh, present day um, society globally. Um, so those tensions and those reasons that people may wish to travel um, beyond Earth's atmosphere are as valid today as they were a thousand years ago. So if those mechanisms are put in place, uh, transportation, energy, um, a willing workforce um, and local resources, those four fundamentals uh, that allow that human uh, migratory expansion can be in place in space. The big difference, the big difference, which I believe needs to hold, is that we cannot use people um, in space to build infrastructure. It's tough enough on Earth when people do this, whether it's you know today, today's present-day cons sophisticated construction workers uh, who operate complex machinery, um, uh, are smart people and driven, um, or today we still have forms of forced labor uh, in many parts of the world for infrastructure build. But in space, that low cost labor is actually on, turned on its head. It's the most expensive. The astronaut or the in-space worker is still, and for decades to come, will be the, you know, one of the most expensive forms of labor. We are now at the point where we can use um, uh, intelligence-driven robotics and an, an industrial robotic workforce that Offworld is building to build those uh, that infrastructure out in space, to build the rigs for our um, ice mining, for propellant, to, to extract and fabricate materials and resources and structures so that we can have basic building blocks such as bricks and pipes and struts and beams um, for, for building um, the, the buildings that we need, both on the surface and uh, under surface. And then to have drinking water and even to land the systems that allow us to create basic foodstuffs. So that as uh, an astronaut uh, um, leaves Earth, lands on the, uh, at the settlement, uh, of the new outpost, they can go in through the airlock that has already been robotically built and, and finished, go into the habitat, switch the lights on, take off her helmet, drink a glass of water, eat a cup of goo or hamburger, however sophisticated the system, and have a starting point that allows Basically, what we need to do is to create the equivalency of the migrationary patterns over the last thousands of years. We need to provide atmosphere, livable shelter, sustenance, uh, energy, uh, and, and all of those basics so that the job of thriving and expanding humanity can then continue unabated. And whilst the, the uh, uh, human uh, uh, adventurers and heroes land in these first locations. Our robots are already at the next location, building forward for the next zigzag. 
and in that way we can start really opening up um, uh, that economic uh, sphere. And and this is nothing. This is nothing uh, magic or unusual. As I said, we we see this if you just look out the window. What you're seeing is the space economy, in the in the traffic, in the buildings, and people walking around talking on their cell phones. That is the space economy. And we haven't seen it yet. It's hard to imagine because uh, a thousand years ago, uh, galleons or steamships or nuclear-powered aircraft carrier was hard to imagine in, in detail, um, uh, let, let alone or even in concept. But if we stretch our imaginations and allow for the fact that we may be wrong, I, I've been wrong way more in life than I have been right, but if enough of us project forward, test our assumptions, execute on those assumptions, a number of those bets will hit. You can increase the uh, likelihood of your bet hitting by following grounded, robust principles. And those principles are build, build your business as soon as you can, build robust infrastructure and systems, get familiar with how to mitigate and optimize and fix them, prove that they're economically viable, prove that they provide value to customers and stakeholders. And when you've gone through a number of those filters, proving filters, then you're ready to say, well, can my systems and processes and technology and my team, can we now take what we've learned and deploy out beyond uh, Earth into the solar system. That that and I, so that I believe economy is the economy in space is going to be huge. Everything for another example, everything we manufacture on Earth is manufactured in an, in a uh, one atmosphere and in one g gravity. Yep. Imagine the optimization that may be possible, not for necessarily for everything. But for a significant portion of technologies and medicines and pharmaceuticals and uh, and other other uh, discoveries that we pursue, imagine what new things we might learn if we had capable manufacturing um, without uh, a gravity field. I think it's I think it's just mind-bogglingly extraordinary. Absolutely, no, it it really really is. The the, the benefits are. Huge, and there's going to be so much more to to see around that. And yeah, thank thank you, James. And another, well, thing. Because, and, and another thing, sorry, yeah, yeah. one final no, point. Please. That that infl that inflection, that economic inflection, um, is not going to be a slow, um, a, a slow progression. Uh, I think uh, <clears throat> as if we take infrastructure, which tends to move heavy infrastructure, tends to move in decades. Uh, technologies tend to you move in years to decade. Software tends to move in months or quarters, maybe a few years. Um, then there are possibly levels beyond that as well that move even faster. It could be as we get into neurotechnologies and uh, uh, brain machine interfaces that the technological pathways may move even more rapidly, especially as we start merging uh, what some may consider you know, a scary new world of, of technological progress of brain machine interfaces, solid state quantum computing, 
ever more advanced machine intelligence um, capabilities, you start merging them together. There's no, there's no telling what may be possible, both uh, in, in the challenging and risky and the benign and um, elevating. But I do believe that the inflection that we saw from the, ons from the first developments of ARPANET and the first experimental connected uh, computational devices to an operating revenue generating internet in the early 2000s. That, that was really um, you know, a, a decade's flip, a decade flip. And that involved heavy infrastructure. There were a lot of cables, transoceanic cables laid. There was massive uh, communications infrastructure put in place, uh, increase in satellite networks and upgrading of all of that space segment. And that was, that was a decade. It was a multi-trillion dollar investment and that happened. I believe when we have uh, the right ingredients in place, uh, we will have multi-trillion dollars investments in space for in, genuine in-space economies. What we've had so far is Earth-facing space segments supporting our Earth-based data and communication economy. But I believe that should our, our new reusable heavy launch vehicle technologies prove viable this decade, we are we are in for a, an exciting roller coaster between now and 2040 that is going to be his, the historic inflection point uh, for the next thousand years of what it meant for humanity to get into space. Oh, incredible. I mean, when you think even with the Wright brothers, you know, and you know what they were doing in the early 1900s, the technological growth from then to us you know, landing on the moon decades later, it's incredible, isn't it? And then, you know, for that to carry on into the in-space economy and the benefits that are going to come from that it is truly astounding. I hope I'm around to see it. I've got to say, <laughs> I'm sure I will be for some of it. Yeah, brilliant. Well, look, Jim, look, thank you so much because I feel like we, I, I would love to, you know, stay on and, and and talk more. You know, maybe we'll have to do another episode at some point because I think there's so much more I could still ask. And yeah, it'd be great to have you on again. You know, once Southworld have continued in their in their development as well. But um. We just wanted to thank you so much for, for coming on and providing your insights and it's really inspirational and you know thank you for you know the way that you're able to you know boil things down as well i think make things more um tangible i suppose as well uh, uh, a great idea but being able to build the practical kind of stepping stones to, to get to that as well so i really appreciate it we do have one final question which is something that we ask everybody um at the end of the podcast um, for young aspiring people who, you know, might be 11 or 12 years old and have, have some ideas here and want to get into space, what one piece of advice would you give to somebody entering the industry? Um, <clears throat> be bold. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to make a decision and jump into a passion. Um, when I think when when you're when you're young, uh, the world can seem vast, uh, confusing, um, full of possibilities, and and I, and I'm sure you can be riddled with doubt and questions about what if I go in this direction and it's wrong. Where I go in this direction and it doesn't work, I've wasted time or I've I've made a mistake, um, and it can be it can be really daunting. 
my my advice is at the the earliest moment you feel you have something that you love and you know you want to do it dive right into it dive right into it and it's not a case of whether the subject or the topic is right or wrong the learning that is common to anything you do is about really about who you are how you meet the challenges of the world and the responsibility of being a sentient being at this moment in time learning how to create how to align your own objectives and bend reality to those objectives how to bring other people with you how to operate with integrity how to understand what is really important about how the world works about how you can support other people to meet their objectives and goals if you learn those lessons you can then do anything and you learn those lessons by forging your own experiences it's difficult to get from a book uh contrary to evidence it's diff- it's it's difficult to get the fundamentals from a book about it's more about how you take all of those lessons that other people have learned and how you respond and deal with them yourselves and so the only way to do that is to dive in and there is whatever you do even if you you start um you know you start studying hamburgers and you spend 5 years doing that and you're passionate about it and then you decide you know what i'm not really into hamburgers that much anymore uh, i want to do something else go find something else go find the next thing because all of those all of that lesson those lessons and that experience are exactly what that period was for and and that that's i guess the strongest lesson i have from my life is that you know i've been driven with a single mission and course but that path has taken me on a zigzag direction i've gone off axis you know up to 30 degrees um but always kept my eye on the goal so be open to new challenges new lessons what you think is the right path in your head as a greater chance of the universe of not being uh, the whole story so be open be bold be passionate be excited move quickly and create there's a, there's a lot more i could say but i'd start off and keep it to that I think that's fantastic advice really inspirational. Um well thank you so much Jim. Um we're going to wrap up now but it's been truly fascinating to have you on the podcast. Really enjoyed this conversation. Um great to hear all your thoughts and insights and we're really looking forward to seeing the future developments of Offworld. Um so I guess that's all um that's all for now but thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank thank you very much guys. Uh pleasure. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps these stories to be found and enjoyed by more people. For more information about Nuco, we can be found at www.nuco-group.com. That's n e u c o-group.com.